ladies and gentlemen, it's Mootloo. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. It feels good. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Feeling sweet. That's Mootloo. I'm Spike. Welcome to the Carl Andrew Record Club music podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez. We'll get to our two albums, which we always do on this episode, as well as a brand new single that Mootloo has picked out. We do have coming up on August 26th, our next live Carl, different than our last live Carl. Our last live Carl was in indoor intimate setting at yes. a at a Mootloo concert. At this one, we will we will simply be <laughs> your background noise. That's right. As you're having fun at the Make the World Better Foundation pre-show tailgate, their annual show, that's Connor Barwin's charity. They have an annual concert, which has grown pretty big. This year, it's at the Dell East, and the show is always and uh, Alex G. And there is an event beforehand right across the street. We're right across from the Dell at Fairmount Park, the pre-show tailgate, which will have uh, booze and food, and we'll be doing a live pod there as well. So we'll put the link to buy tickets right in the description here. You need a separate ticket from the concert. It's a separate ticket. But Stateside Vodka will be there. Human Robot Beer will be there. Federal Donuts will be there. Um, oh, wait. What's the... Uh, there's another human risk. robot beer, I think. Yeah, didn't I say that? I thought I said that. Oh, yeah. Maybe I said that. I think there's human, four vendors in all, two booze and two... Uh, so Stateside Vodka, Human Robot Brewery, oh, Federal Donuts, and Goldie. Goldie, which is like Goldie, a, Goldie, a right. falafel place in Philly, which uh, looks awesome, which I've, I've never been there before. But the uh, the ticket is 50 bucks, benefits the Make the World Better Foundation. You get all the food, you get all the booze, and we'll be doing the live pod there. So looking forward to see it. It's 4.30 to 6.30. It, and, and there's a significant chance, mode that we will be sweating our oh, man. balls off during Wow. This. Yeah. You know, but that's part of the game when you do yeah. outdoor pod, you know, late August, that's how we do it, you know? Yeah, that's how we do it. We got to start <laughs> I mean, I don't know it. if that's how we do it. I'm assuming that's how we do it. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, <laughs> Louise. I, we'll, we'll make sure to stay hydrated uh, during that thing for sure. Oh my God. I'm just thinking about the potential sweat. I mean, I'm a sweater. Are you a sweater? I'm a sweater. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm absolutely a sweater. No question. I've always been a sweater. I sweat when I sleep. <laughs> I sweat when I run. I'm disgusting sweater. So, two albums today. It is the way that it works is Mootlur. I pick an album we love every week. You pick an album you love every week. We talk about them and listen to them. You can suggest an album by going to carlandrewrecordclub.com. Or if you're listening on Spotify, answering the question right below the player or doing an Apple podcast reviews or just going to the link in our social profile. There's like a million ways to do it. So, The albums today, it was my pick. That is 2001's Jimmy Eat World's Bleed American. And the listener pick came from Jamie Rogers. Jamie says, hey, Mootloo and Spike, I'd like to submit an album, Ain't It Tragic by Dead Sarah for your podcast consideration. Somehow this band remains in the margins of the mainstream toward the bottom of festival bills, but they've been consistently pumping out killer pop rock for a couple decades. Ain't It Tragic came out in the middle of the pandemic, and I really believe they've been able, if they had been able to complete a normal release tour cycle, they'd be headlining theater dates right now. Hope you all enjoy. So we have Dead Sarah, which came out in 21, and then our new tune came from Moot. It is Madison McFerrin's Please Don't Leave Me Now. So, excited to get to all this. What should we start with? Um, should we start with the listener? Listener. 
to start with Dead Sarah. I feel like the a lot of times our listener album and our album don't, and there's honestly no thought behind matching them. Like it's pretty random, but I feel like the listener album and the our album sort of go together a little bit. They're not they're not like diametrically opposed. As More so they than are. Black Sabbath and Babel Gilberto. Which that was our, is the point I was trying to make. Which was our make. last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those yeah. were about as far flung I think as we've as, as we've had. But yeah, yeah. These, these make more sense together. Definitely. Yeah. Why don't we do Dead Sarah? Let's do Dead Sarah. First. So Dead Sarah ain't a treasure. Now, had you heard of Dead Sarah before? Uh, nope. Before? Had you? I hadn't either. But I love this record, man. This is just this it's really a cool album. It just really resonated with me, and I love uh, the singer in particular, Emily Armstrong. I mean, it's just a powerhouse yeah, vocalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of. I was going to say a lot of balls, but like, you know gutsy. what I mean? Like, yeah, gutsy, it is, yeah, it is gutsy for sure. It is a, like, well, whatever. Go ahead. It's noisy, but in a good way record. It's like almost, there's so much in there. Right? There's a, they pack a lot in. Maybe that's yeah. why they've been, it's it's interesting, uh, great, great listener pick, but they mentioned they're still sort of on the fringe, I guess, of the yeah. festival circuit. And maybe because they kind of cover so many bases that it's not necessarily easy, easy to pinpoint. You know, sometimes... It's easier if you can kind of pigeonhole someone, and they're not a band that's easily pigeonholed. I don't no, think. this one, this not, and I hadn't listened to anything else, but not for sure, not this record at all. So, give a little backdrop on Dead Sarah. They are a hard rock trio out of Los Angeles. The band is Emily Armstrong on lead vocals and rhythm guitar, Susie Medley on lead guitar and backing vocals, and Sean Friday on drums and backing vocals. And more recently, they've had Alyssa Davey playing bass on recent tours, but I think it's the core trio. And really, this is Emily Armstrong and Susie Medley's band. This is okay. their group. They're like the co-leaders of the group. They've had some different personnel come in and out, but the, the two lead singer-guitarist combo, uh, sort of like Heart, you know? It's a, it's a band, but it's really the, the, you the, know, two, the, the two, two sisters. It's, it, you say trio. There's a lot of noise in there for three people. I can, I can, there's a lot I'm, going, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine why they'd they tour with a, a fourth person to get all that in. And even, even that, I mean... Yeah, it doesn't seem like enough. Still seems kind of bare bones, right? Yeah, for sure, yeah. So, Emily Armstrong and Susie Medley met in 2002. Uh, they were still just teenagers at the time. Uh, they began writing songs together in 2003, and in 2004, they completed their first studio recording, a track called Changes. Now, they briefly went by the name Epiphany, but in 2005, they changed their name to Dead Sarah as a reference and homage to Fleetwood Mac, the song Sarah, mm. and specifically its li lyric that says, Said Sarah, which they both somehow misheard as Dead Sarah. That is very funny. <laughs> We've all had those lyrics in our lives where we, we just think it's one thing for so long and then we're like, oh, that's yeah. what they're saying. That makes a lot more sense. That, that makes a lot, it always makes a lot more sense when you find out what they're really saying. And it's funny when you kind of catch on to something that seems nonsensical, but it makes sense to you because you've heard it that way for so long. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Y you know, in your mind, it makes sense, but it's like when you think of it obje objectively, it doesn't make, yeah. it, it also gets to the thing of uh just a brief tangent of how, you know, we can get into music in other languages that we don't understand because yeah, it's yeah, about yeah. it's about the sound of the words to some extent too. It's yeah. not always the lyrics are very important, but sometimes it's actually about the sound of the words. Yeah, absolutely. So they released a six song EP in two thousand eight. And that was on the label, indie label Viscount Records, this uh, EP called uh, The Airport Sessions. Now they started Playing, you know, playing around Los Angeles, started building a following, 
started getting some recognition for the recordings. And right away, I, some bigger artists started taking note of this band, and specifically Emily Armstrong. Uh, in 2009, Courtney Love invited her to sing on her record, Nobody's Daughter, which came out in 2010. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's uh, it makes sense, though. When you think of how gutsy she is, I could see how Courtney Love would feel a connection to her, yeah, singing sure. in her style. Also in 2011, Grace Slick, legendary vocalist, one of my favorite vocalists of all time, uh, when she was asked in the Wall Street Journal which contemporary female singers she admires the most, she right away singled out Emily Armstrong. When you think of Grace Slick's vocals, uh, you, you know, there's a clarity in her voice, but there's this power and resonance, and I think that's what I like so much about Emily Armstrong. Yeah. And Emily Armstrong also has the... She can do the scream vocal too, which is, <laughs> you know, one of the one of the best vocalists I've heard. I think in a while, as far as a rock band, a ton of power, a ton of power in her voice. Yeah, yeah. just it, it's one of those voices that just cuts through the track. Yeah. In April 2012, they released their debut self-titled album on their own indie label called Pocket Kid Records. It's produced by Noah Shane, and that record started to build some heat. Uh, no pun intended, it hit the Heat Seekers albums chart. Oh, wow. Oh, oh you like mm. that? You like how it worked Seemed that like in? there was a pun intended there. It built it's some heat and then got on the Heat Seekers chart. Yeah, it did seem like a pun was intended. The delivery wasn't very good. I needed <laughs> yeah. a better setup for it. <laughs> yeah. But the pun, the, pun was, uh, the pun was golden. Yeah. Uh, so they, they started to build some momentum with this record. Not a massive commercial success, but the track Weatherman did generate some airplay. That's probably one of their most popular tracks, though, if not their most popular. They got some good sync licenses, including a Fiat commercial, and they toured consistently and constantly throughout the next year or so in supporting this album. Uh, they In the spring, they did dates with Chevelle and The Used. Then they spent that summer of 2012 touring on the Vans Warped Tour. Then in the fall, they toured with The Offspring and Neon Trees. And then early in February 2013, they, they toured as a support act for Muse. So you can see, we, I, I mean, I imagine from all accounts, they're a great live band. And you can see why they're in demand. Whether it's in the studio with someone like Courtney Love or live, they're clearly a group that gets the festival looks, but that is also in demand with bigger artists. You know, It you does just, seem like they can fit with all of those bands, too. Like even Muse, there's, there's that, that like the synth thing that happens in this album, too, that almost makes them you know, fit with Muse as well. It seems like you, you're mentioning all those bands and I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. You know, bands sort of all, all over the rock spectrum there. Yeah, and just kind of looking at that is quite a range, isn't yeah. it? That's not, yeah. not every band would necessarily fit with all those groups. With Warp Tour and Muse. Yeah. And Muse. Yeah, and then Chevelle sure. too. Yep. I mean, uh, those, yep. and even Offspring. Yeah. Uh, so, but that's just a testament to how dynamic and versatile they are. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned at the beginning that, there's a lot going. There's a lot in there, yeah. As far as the musical ingredients, so yeah. To speak. We talk about the value of sort of like empty space and silence. There's sometimes you don't see the world that way. <laughs> this is the opposite of that. This, yeah, is this, a- <laughs> this album is is thick. When you're looking at the wave file of this album, I, I imagine you don't see a lot of a lot of blanks. A lot of you know. Short, yeah. low lines, I don't think. And yeah. I love the thing of less is more space. And we talk, we talked about that with a lot of records, but this, sometimes you got to go the other way. Yeah, sometimes more is more. More, sometimes sure. more is definitely more. I think <laughs> yeah. with this band, <laughs> yeah. more is definitely more. 
Yeah. So they ultimately, on the heels of that album push and tour push, signed with Epic Records. But as you know, we've heard this story a million times. They right away had problems with Epic Records and mm. sort of stagnated them briefly, not for a long time. They went to the studio in 2014 to record their second album, once again with Noah Shane. But the record ended up getting delayed for an entire year, uh, mainly because they had problems with Epic and it kind of brought things to a standstill. But eventually they got out of that deal. And in, t- in spring of 2015, they, they released the record on their own, once again on their own indie label, Pocket Kid Records, album called Pleasure to Meet You. Continued touring, building their audience, building momentum, and just building their profile up. And then ended up signing to a major again in 2017, this time Atlantic Records. And this seems to have become a much more productive and uh, and, and positive label experience. It seems, it seems that, you know, sometimes it's not about the label itself. It's just who are you working with. You, you probably would know this even yeah. better being in radio. And timing, years. by the way, too. It's timing. Yeah. It's, it's who the, the label is responsible. Sometimes the, the, the person... You know, the, the A&R person who signed you and the, the promotion person who's working on the project, sometimes they have like a specific passion. Sometimes, right. the, when I said timing, sometimes they have this other project that is just has to be more important at the right. same time. And you just, you end up getting screwed because of that. So there's a lot of different things that can go into it. Just because a artist has a bad experience with a label doesn't really mean that the artist wasn't good or the label wasn't good. A lot of times it's, it's personnel and timing and all this. It could be 15 different factors, right? For sure. Yeah. And in this case with Atlantic, it seems to have, have, the timing seems to have worked. They right away released a six song EP, temporary things taking up space that was released in summer 2018. And then in November, 2020, they released the lead track off of this record. Hands up. It's interesting that they released that in November 2020 because the album didn't come out until almost 10 months later in 2021. But that is the way of the world now, right? You just start releasing singles for a better part of a year, and then the record drops. Uh, Sometimes it almost seems like the the album release itself is sort of peripheral yeah these days. yeah to the build-up yeah it's more about the yeah the, the album finally comes out and they're the five best songs are already people have already Spotify. been living with them yeah. and yeah. and i don't know i mean what what conceptually what's your feeling on that does as a listener i see as a record maker i wonder if that's just going to start changing how people think about albums because there's something about making an album that you still think of the songs as a collective as a whole as as a as a presentation, at least for some artists, but if if they're all coming out piecemeal, uh, you know, does that change the actual aesthetic of making a record? I think it just depends on the artist. I think there's probably plenty of artists that will still concentrate on making albums. I think if you're a if you're a touring act, there's okay. Like let's say you're a touring act with nine albums, you probably releasing an album probably isn't the most important thing in the world for you, given the amount of material you have, unless you want to make an album. But if you're an artist that only has one album out and you want to tour, like you might need to, like I I think it just might be the case of 
tonnage at a certain point, like having enough songs to choose from to have a, a you know, a career. But if you're just a, a singles artist that, you know, maybe maybe you're not planning on doing much touring. I don't know. I, th I think it just depends. I think there's room for everything. I don't think there's like a rule at this point. Yeah, and I think it, there could be a dissonance in the sense of how an artist might go in if they do want to make something conceptual. Yeah. And then the reality of rolling that thing out. I mean, that sort of happened with Gang of Youth, didn't it? We, we discussed mm -hmm. that with Dave LaPepe. He didn't... I recall him saying the way that those songs came out the way they rolled out wasn't necessarily what he had intended. No, yeah, yeah, for sure. So there is that dissonance there, but it's just the way of the world. So this first single comes in 2020, but Ain't It Tragic, this album that we're discussing, dropped in September of 2021. Now, before we get into this record, once again, another big-name artist that they've connected with, in 2022, they worked on tra a few tracks with Demi Lovato for her eighth album, uh, which is, holy fuck, I guess the V is a U. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Let's, for all intents and purposes, I don't... Yep. Is there another way to pronounce that? I don't know. I, th I think it's hard. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just a way to get on the not not screw up your placement on Spotify right. by having that, that word on it. <laughs> that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Uh, they also joined her tour behind that album in 2022 on the North on the North American leg. So a yet another big, big tour look with a bigger artist. And on their own, they've started building a good draw in their own right, uh, you know, more on the club theater level. But they've had when you think of their over the past decade, they've had a lot of big tour looks, uh, you know, so to me, it's just sort of a matter of maybe it's just, if they haven't had that song or two that's really hit commercially, that's maybe the reason why they're not bigger. But when you listen to this band, they sound like they're ready to be playing arenas. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder how, I wonder how big their fan base is actually. You know, like I, I wonder, I wonder if they're in a comfortable, not comfortable spot. You're never like sort of comfortable, but whether they have enough of a base to sustain a normal career. I would assume doing it this long, they must, right? I think at this point they have to. Yeah. And they, again, they, they keep getting bigger tour looks as well. So that's yeah. another. So let's just go to a few little uh, highlights on this one. Uh, start with the lead track. And the more, the more we get into this, the more I realize i mean it's sort of an obvious thing but especially on a rock album that opening track it's i think it's got to be a monster yeah, yeah. Like you sure. can't start the record with something kind of off kilter. It's no. got to be, it's got to be a killer. So the the track "Starry Eyes" I think is is a really nice intro to this record. Sort of a washed out synth intro at the top, but then then like you said, no no space. Then the arena sweep of the track comes in. Yeah, it lifts off about forty five seconds in. Again, right out of the gate, you just hear the sheer resonance power of Emily Armstrong's voice. And this is a little bit of a technical thing, but. When you listen to this track and a few other tracks, you hear her voice sort of mixed in lower, which I think is something that happens in a lot of rock music. Uh, but in a way, with this kind of track, I think it really works because she sort of, her voice is so powerful that if you were to mix it up too high, it almost sound detached from the track. Right, 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 right. Yeah, like, 
the the all of the music is pretty powerful and so is her voice and i think your your point about it all being mixed is probably all sort of at the same level whereas vocals are usually louder but her right. voice is so powerful that it does sort of sit in the pocket of the song with it and still you still notice it it's it's not buried in the least but it's definitely not on top as uh, as some vocals are it makes me think of some of the rolling stones tracks mm. exile on main street they would have mick jagger's voice yeah low in the mix but for certain types of rock records it just really works it's just a to me it's actually the right way to do it it, it just sounds right it yeah. sounds like it's connected to the music in a way that wouldn't if you were to dial it up a few uh bps sure also big hook on this song i think yeah. uh, you know they write some you know they write some great hooks memorable hooks and again gets the thing that they they sound arena ready yeah for sure another highlight to me is the song good times This is a little more of a social commentary, at least in my perception of it, sort of on the toxic nature of media and how that operates in modern society. But even more, and, and I don't know if this was the attention behind the lyric, but even more the sort of the commercialization of mental health. I mean, it's great in a way that we're able to talk about mental health in a way that's open and honest and vulnerable. The fact that that wasn't the case in decades past was, I think, hurtful to a lot of people. So it's good that we can have those conversations, especially when you hear someone who has a bigger platform, who can talk about those issues. But like anything else in society, it's been co-opted into something that starts to feel cliched or commercialized in some ben way. Simmons. Like, like, like everything, you ben know? Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons. <laughs> I like how you got that in there. <laughs> ben Simmons. Anyway, so yes. Are, is yeah. your thing with him that, um, <clears throat> that in a sense he was kind of faking it? So my theory on him is that he believed he was faking it, but he wasn't. It's a very sort of deep theory on Ben Simmons in that- Well, that's, they, that's, level, that's levels right there. So I think he was mentally destroyed. I don't think he, he came to that realization and I don't think he believes it about himself. So I do think when they were using his mental health as a shield, they were doing so disingenuously. They, they, they never specifically, they, they just kept saying, he kept saying, I'm working on my mental or whatever. And then when he, he went on Reddick's podcast, he, he didn't sound like that at all. You know, he didn't, he was not. But in humble. a way he was actually covering something up, but. It, so I think he still is. I think the reason yeah. that he's not playing is that he, but he has not faced that. So when he was talking about it and saying it, they were not being genuine. Though, does that make sense? That, yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. In a way, he is really struggling. I think partly it's his, it's his ego that he yes. has this massive ego, well, and in a way, he's delusional to some extent, in my opinion, as to where he exists in the spectrum of great players. Like he, he, for all intents and purposes, should be a superstar. So I think there is this thing with people that are uh, very famous at a young age. I mean, take Kobe Bryant, 
take Danny Bonaducci, who I worked with. Danny Bonaducci, yeah, wow. and take and take and and uh, Danny was always good to me. I have nothing bad to say about Danny at all. Just sort of like a armchair psychologist, and and Ben, and I think sometimes they who they are is constructed by somebody else before they get a chance to construct it themselves. So a lot of times their persona is living up to the expectation of what their persona is perceived to be by everybody else. So Kobe, to a certain extent, was always like this. There's this interview with him Chuck Klosterman did where he's like, I don't have any friends and all I care about is this and blah, 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 blah. But it, it sort of felt like everyone thinks Kobe is totally obsessed with basketball and winning. So he has become the person that is expected of him. And Danny was a different person all the time. Like when I met Danny, it was coming off of Breaking Bonaducci. So everybody expected him to be this crazy guy who was doing steroids. And like, you know, when he was a little kid, he was Danny Partridge and blah, 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 blah. And I think to a certain extent, Ben's like invincible, cool guy, basketball star is like this, you say it's ego, but it, it's almost like also a lack of ego. It's almost like this fear and, and self-confidence that is not there and is disguised by an ego that will not allow that self-confidence to, to lack of self-confidence to come through. So I, th I think he, I actually believe, I feel bad for him a little bit because I think, I think if you were to really put him in therapy, it would be, it would be a lot for him. Yeah, I think so, and I think yeah. it's it is kind of sad. I mean, I I do feel compassion for him, empathy sure. for him, because it has nothing to do with his physical gifts. No, he's got those. It it, it it's interesting the way he's. That's a great point. That for someone like him, it's like he didn't really create the persona. Didn't they make like a documentary about him when he was at LSU? They did, and you can like, like there's always he's obviously responsible for some of it. Right, like I'm not saying he has no responsibility, but when you are when you are in the position that he was in from like 13 years old on, and then you are you are surrounded by people who do not tell you any different, and in fact reinforce these bad things, and that's how that documentary comes up that just makes him look like like more of the same thing. It wasn't an honest documentary. It was a it was a documentary built to make him look. Like even on more, and when you look at his social media, there's never any acknowledgement of the the fucking insanity that he has been through, and the the craziness that here is a basketball player that is scared of shooting a basketball. It's yeah. crazy, you know. And and the social media thing is interesting because every summer, yep, same thing. He does the same thing. Yeah, and it's like, well, we've seen this, or but I wonder what the thinking that goes into that. Because yeah, you see the clips of him shooting jump shots. It's, oh, and then there's a certain condition. People are like, oh, he's he's this year he's gonna do it. This year he's gonna, and then you know he's never gonna do it. Well, I think the thinking is simply he. Everybody loves positive feedback, and he right. posts Absolutely. it, and he wants to believe that. I think like he he goes through these things where he goes through these times in the off season where he probably even certainly believes, okay, it's gonna be okay now. It's going to be okay now. There's and he posts the things and he gets positive feedback. But then, when he's in the real situation again, 
and he hasn't dealt with it. So every year it gets harder and harder and harder to deal with those real problems that he has. It's like diminishing returns for him. And for sure, I've seen other athletes talk about the issues they've had. Someone like Kevin Love, for example, Mm -hmm. in a way that's very earnest and genuine and difficult. Because to have that to have a big platform, to have a lot of visibility, and to talk about mental, emotional distress, when in some way, especially as an athlete, people want to view you as invincible. Yeah. Uh, You know, that's very difficult to do. I wonder if he would come at it in that way. Well, I think though the difference is, is that when you hear people like Kevin Love talking about it and DeMar DeRozan talked about it, you're talking about guys, Kevin Love's like 35 years old, DeMar yeah, DeRozan's 34. Yeah. And even if it was a few years ago, is, you know, there's an enormous difference between being a 22 year old and being a 30 year old, you know, who's on the decline of his career and is like, is now an adult and willing to really look at, you know, his emotions and not, he, he actually, his, his physical skills did diminish. So he had to, you know, the guys like DeRozan and Kevin Love have to come to grips with the fact that they're not invincible because they finally physically understand that they're not, like they're invincible. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's something that comes, a wisdom that comes with age and yeah. recognition of where you are, but. For sure. So yeah. that was a, a long a tangent. A long tangent, but, but to, yeah. to get back to what we're saying is that if you take the Ben Simmons thing, you you hit it on the head in the sense that you said the way it was presented was not genuine was not real it was a even though he he is someone who's probably suffering for sure and that's that's the way i think sometimes those issues are co-opted in a way that is not true to the essence of what it really feels like to struggle and i think that's kind of what this song good times yeah gets into like some of the lyrics says uh generation ketamine pay your dues in therapy pretty babe keep on dancing let the rhythm run through her Pack your feelings up for the weekend, making ends meet for a living. I said, listen, this could be the worst of me. Who have I become? I mean, it's sort of like when I read those lines, it's they. it seems like the catchphrases of things you've seen when In, people talk it, yeah. about these issues, but not the real issue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and it's kind of a shame. It's something that's so, that so many people deal with. More people mm-hmm. deal with it than they want to admit. Everything in our society can become is kind of dispensable in a way. And yeah. it's there for entertainment and it's there for clicks. And mm-hmm. uh, that's why I thought this song was just powerful because I think it, it, whether or not that was the exact uh, angle they were coming at it from, that's how I processed it. And it does seem to be that type of commentary. So not just a great band, you know, as far as their performance and the melodies and production, but some very interesting lyrics on this one. And then one other tune I'll spotlight that I was one of my favorites was the song Hypnotic. Yeah, that was on my list. Yeah, again, a little bit more of like the funk kind of rock group. It reminded me of like... There's like a period in the 90s in alternative music where like dance music was a part of it or something. And it was this combo. It's sort of, you remember that band Elastica had that song Connection? I, I don't know if I remember them. Oh, you would. You would cue that, cue that bad boy up. Oh, yeah. Let's cue this bad boy up. I know everybody <laughs> listening is like, Maybe I'll, oh, I, I, might, I might recognize it. There's sure. literally no chance you're not going to remember Connection. Hold on. Let me <laughs> bring it up on my my music app here. Hold on, hold on. There we go. 
Circa what time are we talking? What uh, connection is probably ninety three, but I'll look it up. Hang on. Oh, I know this. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and just didn't know actually, what it was. The, yeah. By name. That riff is just immediately <laughs> successful. Yeah. 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 So there you go. I like that almost conversational vocal delivery she has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On that one. And this one is a little, this, her vocal uh, on this one, on that one, Emily Armstrong is a little, I won't say not exactly hip hop, but it's a little more in that kind of uh, vocal rhythm, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's an awesome hypnotic's an awesome tune. It was the first one that I that I wrote down actually. That I think it was I, I was enjoying it up until that point. I don't know if it's like the fourth or fifth song, but it hits and it's like it's an awesome tune, man. I feel like it kicks off the rest of the record a little bit. Yeah, and I mean that those are kind of interested to hear more of uh, your takes on this one. But one last thing I'll say about them is this is a group that has it all and. Objectively speaking, if the music business were meritocracy, they should be selling out arenas. I know it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Just like they said about the labels, there's 20 other factors as to why something hits commercially or doesn't. There is something. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I just just think it's not... For whatever reason, I hear a band like this, I'm like, well, why are they not... Yeah, they're getting the big support looks and festival looks, and that's awesome. So they're having a good career, but like, I just when I hear this and I A B it to other things I've heard that are in this vein, you know, why is this not uh, huge? Yeah, the there's something about power pop that, like, over the last like 30 years, there's not a ton of power, like, there's a lot of great power pop, like, rock pop bands that do not make it like there's just like a I, I don't know maybe it's because it doesn't fit maybe it's that it's like too catchy for rock audiences and it's a too rock and roll for pop audiences and it it doesn't have like a it doesn't have a genre home where they you know on one end they can fit with all these different bands and support acts but on the other end what is the support what is the the bill of bands that has a natural headliner and in this whatever this genre is that could go on tour that they could be on with do you know what i'm saying Interesting, I, yeah. I i i almost i think as a I think about Butch Walker, but I think about, uh, and his previous band, Marvelous Three. Marvelous Three had a like one hit and they're getting back together, which is awesome. But you look at those, that era, even if you connect it to like that new radical song, there are songs here and there that broke through, but are there a ton of like alt power pop bands or whatever that broke through that don't specifically fit into a genre that don't fit. They can't nestle themselves into pop punk or regular punk or, or, you know, dirtball nickelback rock or new metal. Is that or, what it's called? Is that what well, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to radio rock, whatever it is. <laughs> dirt, is I it don't, a dirtball genre? Dirtball genre. I, I say that with love, <laughs> like nickelback. I like nickelback. I don't know. I, I, I agree with you, It, but it does seem, it's interesting that there are a lot of bands, I think, that don't necessarily have a home in that way and that can cost them because it, it, it it's hard to build momentum if there's not a a genre that you can fit into where there's a lot of people that love consuming that sort of music from that genre. It's a great point. And it actually, there's a bitter irony there that if you're too versatile, yes, 
it can work against you because there are certain scenes, right? Like you said, pop punk scene, punk scene. If you fit squarely into that, you can immediately be channeled into an audience. Yeah. And into a circuit. I think about jam bands. There's a certain circuit of jam bands. And if you yeah. fit that mold, but if you don't necessarily fit any of those scenes directly, and you can actually, you just mentioned, this band can jump between a lot of different things because they're that versatile. You can put them on a lot of different festival bills and they'll work. It almost works against you to be too dynamic and too versatile. And that's the clash of artistry and what works commercially because there's some need that people have to like put something in a box. Yeah. And that's I, I, very frustrating to me. As an artist, that's extremely frustrating to well, me. Well, and I don't think it's nefarious. I think people like... You like one thing that's like a certain thing, so you'll like other things that are like a certain thing. I don't think people even choose the sort of music that they enjoy. It just sort of touches them one way or another. But, um, but yeah, it's a, it's an interesting... And if you don't write a song that blows up as a hit, I mean, that, that could make up for a lot of things. True. But, you know, but it doesn't blow up as a hit. So it makes me think of, you know, when uh, Mount Joy, who is a friend of the Rights to Ricky Who have Sanchez, really become very popular now. It's it's wild. We had them do a cover of the Tony T song, that <laughs> You Don't Fuck With Me, very early in the pandemic. This is a, a deep Rights to Ricky Sanchez There reference. were some epic covers of that one. Yeah, <laughs> there were. And they did it. And they they were like a reasonable like touring band at that point. But between that point three years ago and now, they have become massive. But I think part of, and they're a great band, but part of why they become massive is you see their shows and, and you hear them and you're like, oh, they fit, they nestle quite well into that jam band, you know, Red Rocks scene where there are just a group of people that like going to shows. I'm not saying they don't love Mount Joy. I'm saying they are, but when you can fit into a, a culture that way very easily. I think it probably makes it easier to that ramp up from, you know, zero to 60 happen, can happen a lot quicker. You can go from being a club band to suddenly selling out amphitheaters yeah. pretty quickly if it all comes together. For sure. But one, one thing, one other question I'll bring up, I'm curious what you think about this. Is it really the listeners that have the need to put things in a box or is it the gatekeepers in a lot of cases that need it from a marketing standpoint? Because if you look at the way people absorb music now, you look at someone's playlist, it could be all over the place. And they're not honestly obsessed with having to put certain artists in certain, certain places. That's actually the democratization of music listening. I think that's the one good thing about streaming. But you're saying actually that's still not the case. In practice, it does really help if you can kind of be put into a certain lane. I think people like like consistency. I think in general, people that like country music like country music. I, I th there's 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 always been people that have liked quote unquote all kinds of music, and it is definitely easier to be that person. But I do think even that has its limits, and I I still think there are scenes. There are definitely scenes. There are definitely music scenes, and I don't necessarily believe that that is anything nefarious from like a record label or whatever, like the, that the jam band scene was not created by anybody, but those people, you yeah. know? And I think you could say the punk scene was not created by anybody, but those people. So I, I there always been genres and always people like belonging. I think it gives them a sense of, um, a sense of community when, when there's a, you know, where you go to, you go to shows and you see the same people at every show. They, it was the new metal thing that way for a while. So, um, anyway, this album, 
before we get, I, I want to say, heroes. Another great country. tune. Yes. And I do love the way when you listen to it that you, the instrumentation in the verse, the pre-chorus and the chorus is like, is different for each one. So the verse, it's very sparse. It's almost the most sparse part on the album where it's just the drums and the vocals. And then the pre-chorus, there's a little bit more. And then in the chorus, it comes full dead Sarah with the whole band and Massive I think it, payoff on that one and the payoff is great it like you earn the payoff with the verses and the and it's one point in the album where they're really not coming full force the whole time they're, but they're setting it up to fucking hit you in the face with it which is great yeah that's it's it's tough to even pick a few highlights because the whole record for the most part is yeah great listen but there's moments like that that yeah. type of ascension in the arrangement mm -hmm. that's just like wow and then i really liked uninspired which sort of seemed like a song about writer's block The, I love the lyrics. Um, you could say me, you could you could say I'm lazy. You could call me crazy. I gotta write a hit song. All my unemployment's gone. Gone. Where's my inspiration? I'm not inspired by pool parties and the cocaine conversations. I'm not inspired by the freedom of American citizens. So uninspired to write songs of love and breaking up. I know it's something <laughs> that I have to go through. You know that I, is so. Uh... That resonates with me so much, and I think I'm a lot sure. of songwriters. Uh, yeah, it made me, you know, the, it may, and just another testament. They are great lyric writers too, and it made me think of friends I've had who've gone to Nashville with mm. the dream of writing hits. Yep, and they get, and within six months, they're so disillusioned. Yep, <laughs> because you have to, you know, like okay, what's the subject matter? She kind of touches on that there. It's like yeah. you know, if you don't you fit hit this points, if you don't hit the points, yep. You know, that's not inspiring. I mean, you want to write from your experience, not from like a set of ideas that you're somehow supposed to latch on to. But yeah. I mean, there's some people that do that well, but you know. Um, yeah, great album. Uh, we've been on this album for a long time, so I want to move on. But uh, uh, just an absolutely excellent album, excellent band. Would love to see them live oh, at yeah. some point. But uh, just an, and um, I'm, I would say this is, you know, I've liked a lot that we've listened to and I've become a fan of things because of the, the, the pod itself. And this is one that I'm, I'm definitely a fan of, of theirs now. One of the, one of the best listener picks or one of my favorite listener picks, I'm right there with you, but yeah. they've, they've all been, we've had so many good ones, but this one in particular really, really stands out. Yep. Let's go to the other album, so we make sure we have time for it. The other album was...
Jimmy Eat World, Bleed American, which I'll explain in a bit, but depending on when you bought the CD, it could have been called Just Jimmy Eat World, self-titled, as it was originally called Bleed American, which I will get into, Mulu. <laughs> Jimmy Eat World formed in Mesa, Arizona. Jim Adkins, Tom Linton, Rick Birch, and Zach Lind. Rick Birch was not an original member, but was a, was a member of the band for Bleed American and for nine of their 10 albums. Jim Atkins and Zach Lind were friends when they were little kids and toward the end of high school, they looked to start a band and that is when they teamed up with Tom Linton and a bass player named Mitch Porter. Where does the name come from? Tom Linton says in an interview, actually, it's from a picture that my little brother drew probably five years ago. My brother Jim beat up my, uh, my younger brother, Ed, and Jim ran into his room and locked his door. And Ed drew this picture that said, Jimmy Eat World, which was a picture of him eating the world. <laughs> my brother Jim is kind of a big guy, a stupid name. So that's well, where it That is from. so specific and so random. Yeah, it's very funny. <laughs> it is very funny. So they started as when you listen to the the debut they put out in 94 on a, like an indie label, they were pretty straight ahead, I would say American punk band in that they came from the, you could hear sort of um, Bad Religion or Ramones or just sort of like the, not, not the, the compact tight punk that still gives into song structure a little bit, but, but straight ahead punk music. Um, they put out a demo, they got signed to an indie and put out their debut in 94, which builds up such a buzz. They get on good tours. They end up signing with Capitol Records, which put out their major label debut, which is called Static Prevails in 1996. And after this is when Mitch Porter leaves the band and Rick Birch joins the band. But it was really their next album for Capitol called Clarity, which if you ask Jimmy Eat World fans, Clarity is usually their, their favorite Jimmy Eat World album where they takes them to the the next level. And it, it also sig signifies a sort of a difference in their musical approach, but also singer. So up until that point, um, uh, Tom Linton was the primary singer and on Clarity, it became Jim Atkins became the primary singer and Clarity, Clarity and, and Bleed American are, are really different records. Um, Jimmy World currently touring with Manchester Orchestra. My buddy Jeff just saw them in St. Louis, I think. Really? That, night that's a, that seems like an unexpected combination, yeah, doesn't Jimmy it? Jimmy World has gone through a lot of phases. And I think that at this point, you're, you're thinking about older millennial and Gen X who probably also like Manchester Orchestra too. And it's a co-headline bill. They, they flip-flop who's headlining each night. Now, what type of rooms are they playing? I'm curious. I would imagine they are doing big theaters. That would be my guess. Is like 3,000 cap uh, uh, or maybe even big, or, yeah, but it's maybe, not a shed tour. It's not like a shed not tour. Not a shed tour, but I bet it could do five to seven K. That would be my guess is, is that it could. That That's would an be interesting spot. You're kind of in between the big theaters yeah. well, and the bigger and, amphitheaters. And Jimmy World's a, a big enough band where they, 
they, they could sell out big clubs, no problem, right? Like they could do the 2000 seaters, no problem. They probably couldn't do 7,000 seaters on their own. So that's probably the, the difference for them. So they, so they put out Clarity and Clarity is different than Bleed American and that Clarity is sort of like, I would say not quite as tight, not quite as rocking and more expansive. And I think they got lighter on Clarity and then they got almost heavier during Bleed American. So, so they get bigger during Clarity, but their deal with Capital expired and they decided to record Bleed American without a label and then try to sell it to a label. And their producer who had produced the last two, produced Clarity and produced uh, the one before that, Mark Trombino, actually agreed to produce it and defer his payment until not get paid up in, until the record got sold. Um, which is interesting. And they all got regular jobs. Like they would do a tour and then they would work so they could pay for the record. So Tom Linton was working in construction. Um, Jim Atkins sold art supplies. Wow. And Burtz shipped auto parts and Lind um, uh, drove customers around at a car dealership. I love that. Why not? Yep. <laughs> so um, it said, I found a, a, like a, an article for the time. Eventually they had tucked away enough money to record a new album on their own dime, beholden to no one. They hold up in an LA studio with Mark Trombino, who had enough faith in the band to work for free in the hope that someone would release it and he'd be reimbursed. And while some labels curiosity peaked before the sessions, it was during the album's recording that the suits really began to take notice. So this is uh, the bass player. I think we were there were people that were interested all along because it was no secret that we were not happy with Capital, how they were handling us, mainly as far as their lack of enthusiasm toward the band. A lot of different people were saying, hey, if you need a label, we're here for you. So they came down and listened and they were like, wow, this is sounding pretty good. And I guess they told their friends and it kind of worked through the grapevine. And the next thing we know, we had our choice of where we wanted to go. It was really cool. It was the exact opposite of signing the Capitol. When we did that, we definitely had nothing to offer. We were a baby band that really had no experience making albums or anything, but then we had this record that people liked finished. So we just took it to everyone. And this time everyone wanted it. Um, so they signed to DreamWorks to release the record, which DreamWorks at the time was a, 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 a big imprint. Um, They've essentially folded at this point. Yeah, right? I mean, most of those, like that era of, of labels have, you know, folded into other. Uh, but DreamWorks was a big deal at the time. Um, I mentioned it was, so they've, they've done 10 albums. They are still an active band. They are exactly our age, by the way. And you can hear in recent years the the sort of 80s rock um, influence on this band and in how they play. They're interesting in that they play, they play drop D, um, which you can hear, mm -hmm. like they, they have a really driving guitar, but, um, but it's not like, it's not heavy rock, but it, the guitar can feel heavy sometimes. And you can hear in their, their recent stuff, I'll, I'll send you a couple of songs, the sort of 80s rock influence. But I mentioned, so it was released in June of 01, as Bleed American, 9-11 happens in September of 01, which is when they changed the name of the record um, from Bleed American Makes, to self-titled. And sense. you remember all that. I mean, I feel like we could do an entire episode on the songs that 
went away and and the the change in music that happened right around that was a seismic uh, shift that happened there enormous enormous not just song titles and album titles but actual songs like disappeared from like there was a there was a song called boom by pod you remember the band pod like yeah. rock metal band just f- fucking disappeared off the charts and then um they had another song called youth of a nation which was sort of like this optimistic song about the future that ended up blowing up i think in part because of what people wanted after 9-11 as well i think people wanted more optimistic and less dark stuff that was happening at the time it's a collectively traumatizing experience suddenly it's amazing how that that massive trauma that everyone felt on some level uh, shifted everyone's tastes. Yeah. You know, and I think there's not to that extent, there's been some version of that with the pandemic, wouldn't you mm-hmm. say? Things feel uh, different. Yeah. I, I feel like I, I, it's harder to pinpoint. Yes. Like you, what you mentioned is very specific, but there is some difference now. I just, it's, it feel, it's a feeling. It's a feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just everything at, at that time, everything moved sort of in concert but better than everything moves now. So it's, I think it's easier to, to, rem- to talk about then because there was more monoculture stuff happening then than there is now. The shift now is harder to tell because the shift is a little bit different for everybody, but everyone can feel it. It's just harder to put into words what the difference is. And that's also still right before social media really hit the critical mass. Right. Actually, yeah. it's, it's a few years before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say, I mean, MySpace was like, oh, Three or four, something like that, when it started. Friendster was kind of the first one that I remember. Yeah, that was like then, two maybe. Yep, and then and then Facebook right around oh six oh seven started taking hold. So, so this album has sold two million, almost two million copies. Oh wow! To, to this, this is day. a pretty big hit. Yeah, this is a big big record. Now the biggest song on this was the middle. which lives on. I, I recognize that one immediately. Yeah. Even though I don't really know this band. That's so recognizable, that song. Yeah, and it's a, <laughs> a, a massive hit. And every time, I, I'll never forget, being at a Las Vegas karaoke bar with my brother. <laughs> and some guy goes up there and starts doing the middle. And my brother reacted as if he was at a Jimmy E. World concert. I've never seen him so excited. <laughs> but people, I mean, that song lives, a lot of songs from this album live on on rock radio. But what I enjoy about this record is that it is, um, it, it takes a lot of different genres, I think. I think, you know, it takes some straight, like down-home rock, some, you know, Springsteen petty stuff, and also takes punk music as well and also has a, like a power pop vibe to it and is just a incredibly strong rock record beginning to end i found a quote from zach lind that said that we had gotten interested in people like tom petty and bruce springsteen guys who wrote really great big american rock songs we'd never really thought about that before as previously we we're drawing on more punk and alternative stuff with bleed american we liked the idea of trying to make a record in that vein clarity wandered quite a lot it went off in different tangents um and we let it go wherever 
whatever way we wanted. This was more focused. And you mentioned first tracks, like, oh yeah, Bleed American is like. another it's 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 a hallmark i'm finding now that we've discussed so many albums and so many rock or not even just pop but even heavier records like it's a hallmark of any great record i don't know that seems obvious i guess but i I, maybe it's i never thought of it like that it would be something so consequential because if you don't start like that I, i don't know i feel like the experience is different a hundred percent it like it primes you like bleed american primes you for the rest of this record and it is it is driving and noisy and focused but also a a great written pop song you know i mean and i think there's there's no shortage on this album of earworm great songs like beginning to end and it's only i think the album's 42 minutes long or something like that and it almost every song packs that sort of wallop they are so skilled as pop songwriters yeah Uh, yeah that was my biggest takeaway on a broad broad level. It's like, wow, really? man, these guys know how to... Cry. Is it a group thing or is there one sort of individual writer? No, it's a group thing. I mean, Atkins is like the, I think, the primary songwriter, but it's a group thing. I, yeah, I should have asked you at the beginning what your, your familiarity with Jimmy World was. The middle, I know. I yeah. Mean, I'm yeah. not sure if you were living on planet Earth and listen to any kind of rock radio, you probably know that one, but I... I didn't. I, I know the name and I know that mm. song, but this was the first time I actually listened to a record, and it's just the one thing I, I was curious about is again needing to put things in a box or pinpoint. Like it's, is it really? It's not emo. Is it? Is it pop punk? It's. It, it sort of feels like that, but it also feels like a lot of other things to me. So yeah, they. I would say they. They lived in the through necessity. They probably lived in the lived in the pop punk slash emo world for a while but 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 definitely have been a just a rock band i think for a long time i think his vocal delivery is a little you know pop punky and i think because they come from the the punk ethos or whatever and that's where it started i think a lot of their fans are there but also a lot of their fans are in their 40s now you know but then you hear a song like your house That doesn't feel like pop punk to me. That just no. uh, that almost could exist in the more straight ahead mainstream pop rock of that era. Yeah, absolutely, sort of yeah. a uh, for lack of a better to use a radio reference, hot AC like that. Yeah. It, it has that kind of quality to it. Absolutely. Well, and I think some of their songs have. I, w- I would imagine that. By the way, the middle. So the middle ended up number one modern rock. I think it was number five Billboard Hot 100. I mean. Big hit, pro- yeah, enormous, enormous hit. Uh, another song I love, uh, Hear You Me. There's no one in town I know 
A great tune is a Got that ballad. one here. <laughs> yeah. I actually have your house and that one back to back. Here, So uh, it's a ballad about um, these two women, Michael and Carly Allen, that ran the Weezer fan club. And they were also big fans of Jimmy Eat World. They died in a car accident driving back from a Weezer concert. And they would always say... Oh, they would always say, hear you me. And I guess they would look for up and coming bands. And when they were coming to the area where they lived, they would give them a place to stay. And that is what the song is about. Oh, that's really about, sad, man. Yeah, the, wow. those two women. But as a man, and I, the guitar has always stuck out to me on hear you me. It's incredibly simple, but in the... Like, cause I, I think the verses are, I think he's just playing like one chord over and over and over. I think it's just, there's nothing complicated about it. No, but it is, it, it feels so important. I think because it's so sparse otherwise, it feels so important in the, in the song itself. When I think of that song and a few of the others like your house, what they exemplify to me is simple isn't always easy. Right. Yeah. They, they keep it simple, but there's not a note out of place. There's not a note or a chord, or anything in the arrangement that doesn't deliver. Yep. And that seems, at first glance, I would say, oh, well, you know, it's a three-chord song. Like, uh, I think about Creedence Clearwater Revival, like, all their songs were three chords. It's like, well, that's easy. No, that's not easy. That's actually a lot harder than people realize. I always say about, it's funny that you say that, I say about sports radio, I was like, doing it well is not complicated, but it's also not easy. There's it's a, a very difficult, in my yeah, opinion, because I'm a, I'm a fan of that genre, and it's it's similar to pop songwriting, but in a very different way. Yeah. It's, it's I, like you, you keep it simple, but the simple is not easy to do. Right. It is like, yes, they're only using three chords. Okay. So go ahead, put them in the right order to, to <laughs> make, make it mean a, something. Make yeah. It, to make, make it, it communicate something, right? To make it mean something good and also not the same as anything else that has done before, <laughs> been done before, but enough of the same to where people are attracted by it. Like that is the, that's why it's so hard is that it's so simple, you know? It's it's the art of economy. That's what pop songwriting is. The best pop songwriting. People think a Beatles song, look at so many of those tunes. They're two minutes, two and a half minutes long. Yep. Is that easy to do? No, of course not. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's yeah. incredibly difficult to do. Yeah. Um, and one other song that I'll mention that I love. I mean, there are so many good songs on this um, I, that I could talk about. I always loved Get It Faster. And the reason I loved Get It Faster so much. I don't care what you do. I'm getting out. No, nothing ever shames me. I don't want a thing from you. I'm going out. I don't care if you're angry. Um, and the, the lyrics are very young man, but I remember the end of this album's cycle. Like it had been through touring and singles and singles and singles and K-Rock in Los Angeles at the time just, you know, 
one of the the define the defining radio station of the genre just sort of determined where what was cool in alternative music they wanted another single get it faster was not a single and they just started playing it and i remember hearing it on k-rock and i was like oh this is fucking cool they're like we want another one we're just doing this and, and it caught it, on did it, it, it did it catch on like a uh, chart wise I wouldn't say, I, I'd be curious to see what it did chart-wise. Other stations did start playing it, but K-Rock played it a lot. And I always loved the, just sort of like, um, like, dun, 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 yeah, it's, like this, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty hypnotic that, that Yeah, line. the verses, and then this huge chorus, which well, I this makes me think well. of something, and you can speak to this as a radio programmer. If something is, at first glance, not deemed, quote-unquote, hit or radio-worthy, can you will it towards that because it's just undeniable and you give it enough exposure? Or is, is there, in your opinion, something that has to exist in, intrinsically with the song for a radio programmer to say, okay, that, we know that's going to be a hit. It's a chicken and the egg kind of thing, you know? I think both exist. I think it's, um, I can only speak from the time that I was doing it. So now I would, I would not, it's different now. Everything's different now because of the number of sources that people get music from. I do not think at the time that I was doing it that you could make something a hit that wasn't a hit. Hmm. I think you could get it, you could chart it, you could get it on the radio, you could maybe make a test okay, but you could always tell the difference between real hits and not real hits. Um, I, now, I do think that some songs, because they, from a research perspective, would not hit right away, do take more belief from programmers. And sometimes you would see it in, well, this band's, I saw them live. They were like, take a, a band that you had never heard of and the record label gets you to go see the show. And they were like, I remember this happened with Linkin Park. So like One Step Closer was on MTV and the radio. And I was like, all right, cool, whatever. And then I saw them at the truck and the single had maybe been out for two weeks and somehow every kid at the fucking venue knew every song. And then you were like, wow, I remember being just oh, like crushed by that. I was like, Oh my God, what is this? And at that point when something like that happens to you now, even though their songs were like radio ready or whatever, but you would take a chance on a band like that because you know it, maybe you don't hear it, but it resonates with, you could see the proof that it resonates somewhere. That's a long, but I don't think you could just make people like something because you expose it. I there don't has think to be works. something inherent within the mm -hmm. composition. Yep. Slash the performance that's going to make it really like be, have staying power on the chart. And I, I do remember, do you remember the song, I Hate Everything About You by Three Days Grace? Here, maybe you'll recognize it right away. I'm sure oh. I will. Oh, yeah, that riff is immediately yeah, recognizable. And... <laughs> I want to get to the chorus. Oh. That groove is a hook in and of itself. Here it comes. So just to the point of like what a hit and what isn't and how sometimes we put that song in research. My boss, Tim, insisted I put it in research even though we had never played the song. Like it had a little bit of local airplay, but never played the song. Song came back number one in the research. Wow. So we, but you hear it right away. See, we yes. listen to that. Yeah. You hear that hook, like, oh, that's, a, that's a massive hook right there. 
Yeah. And sometimes, and that's all the person in research hears is the hook. So we put it and I'm like, that's a, an anomaly. Won't happen again. And we put it in research again, was number one again. And the song ended up just being this giant hit because sometimes, like, sometimes it's just undeniable, like a song like that was. Um, and sometimes songs need more work. But again, I don't think you can just create a real hit um, on your own. I think it just, it has to be a hit. It has to be inherent to the mm-hmm. tune, something in the tune. Yeah, yeah. Um, was there anything else on the record before? I feel like we've been all over the place. <laughs> I have another podcast. <laughs> we maybe five. have to punt ahead on the single. Yeah, we'll punt ahead on the, on single, the single for sure. Yeah. One other thing then that I'll mention yeah. that I love about this album is the vocal dynamics. That one, something that I know you love is the group singing. You hear yeah. that? Uh, yep. But then on a song like a, a, a Praise Chorus, you hear... Yeah, what a great song. Great tune. And I love that there's really nice harmonies in that one, but then you hear like overlapping vocal lines. Okay. Two lines that are kind of counterpoint happening at once at par- in parts of the song. I just think their vocal approach is just very compelling. It never, It's never just... It never gets monotonous. There's always something interesting that's happening just from a purely vocal standpoint. Uh, there was a quote from Jim Atkins on that song. So one of my friends was involved in her church's music and we were getting into an argument about how lame contemporary Christian music can be sometimes, actually most of the time. <laughs> Praise Chorus was the way she roped in the formulatic way, the formulatic, formulaic way that all contemporary Christian music is about. It's similar to a lot of pop music in the way that it's just basically about trying to get people to clap along and sing, and it's pretty rock and roll. I thought it would be an interesting juxtaposition to reference that in a song that's really just about rock and roll, the unquantifiable release you get when rock music is doing what it should. The Crimson and Clover is a throw out to all of these songs. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I think, I, I, I never thought of that as far as, I guess it makes sense as far as Christian music. I thought that yeah. I listened to a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I well, guess the core mechanism that people are going for is the same as with anything else. I mean, any other genre. That I, I'll remember, I, sometimes, like, man, this is like a whole other episode. I think we talked about it with Chevelle, but there was this thing that would happen in the early 2000s where there would be these Christian bands that would have, rock bands that would have these huge like fan bases, but the label wouldn't tell you that they were a Christian rock band. You would just see this huge fan base and you would hear the song and you'd be listening to the song. You'd be like, oh yeah, this is going to be a huge hit. This is going to be a huge hit. Oh man, I can hear this. And all of a sudden it would be the chorus and it would just be like, and he is the reason we're here and alive. And you're like, I fucking knew it. You tricked me. It's a fucking God song. <laughs> so they're, yeah, but they are all going for the same thing. They're, they're just top, they're, they're uh, topic matter is one specific wasn't creed thing. technically uh no that's not a, exact, a that's a different thing yeah we should do a creed record the first creed record is about religion but it is mostly but it's about, not a christian it's not a christian rock it is not a christian song. rock album i do not i do not believe i believe he, they were misrepresented because the album is about religion that it is a religious album i do not believe it is so um so you enjoyed this you like this was great yeah this yeah. is uh not even that I want to put it in the pop punk category. It's just a great rock album. It's, it's yeah, too dynamic sure. to just say it's one thing yep. or another, but just a great song, great performances. Uh, all right. Well, if you have, we'll get to the single next time. 
Um, if you have a suggestion, I listed all the things, <laughs> the ways you could get us a, an album. We have like Please half a dozen it. ways you can get it to us now, right? Yeah, there's there's a lot of ways. People are taking advantage of all of them, so thank you. And then get tickets to the Make the World Better Foundation pre-show tailgate in the description uh, of this pod. There is a link to go get Yeah, tickets. it's going to be a great time. Come Come hang with us in the heat. Sweat. Sweat with us. <laughs> Sweat to the oldies with us. All right. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. Stay free, my goose. Stay free, my goose.